All right, before I start, I, I do want to um, say a few things about your pastor, Matt. Um, if I've learned one of my big lessons in, in pastoring and as a husband and father, uh, it's that life and death never go according to plan. Uh, for those of you moms, you know that you probably went into birth with a particular birth plan in mind, and chances are it didn't go according to plan. For those of you who've had friends or loved ones uh, die in this last season or just over your lifetime, you probably know that also didn't go according to plan. And for Cross of Christ, it was also very similar. Um, Matt mentioned being there for uh, the end of Cross of Christ, and that did not go according to plan. It's not what we pictured, um, and it meant uh, the world to us to have uh, Pastor Matt uh, and his family and this church alongside us uh, for that really challenging, painful, hard uh, transition. But Matt was also there for the birth of that church, which also didn't go according to plan. And I just want to mention this because I've had a few people bring it up to me. But if you've been listening to the Mars Hill podcast at all, you might have heard my voice on there and a fraction of our story. And I just want to add some color to that. For those of you who might be listening to that, as you hear those stories, know that behind that pain and difficulty were men like Matt, who were sitting with me and others over elder meetings and phone calls, um, caring for us and helping us through really challenging uh, situations like that at Mars Hill, but also as we were planting Cross of Christ in the wake of that. And so Matt was there for the birth and the death of something really special uh, to myself and to the people in this room, and Matt, we're thankful for that. Thank you for being a faithful friend, a godly example, um, and just a wonderful man. Thank you. <clears throat> So we're in a strange in-between moment. You have lost friends and family in this last season. Some to COVID, some to politics, and some to moving out of state. Our, our daughter is in a uh, musical theater production right now, and she joined it originally before COVID. They obviously had to put that on pause. And when we started coming out of the restrictions, they reopened the auditions because 50% of the cast had moved out of state. That's just one anecdotal picture, but I know each of us has been touched in some way by even that kind of loss of friends who've moved out of state. Each of us have been touched by friends who we've divided with, or family members we've divided with over COVID restrictions, mask, uh, max and vaccine policies, everything in this past season. We've all lost something. This past season has felt like a death for me. Our church closed, as I mentioned, as a casualty of California's COVID restrictions that the Supreme Court ruled were unconstitutional and their unfair targeting of churches. <laughs> And honestly, my heart breaks about once a month over it. Last week, I was in Austin uh, with the company I work for now, Subsplash. The whole company gathered for the first time in two years. And it's a Christian company, a Christian software company. And in the morning of the last day, we had worshiped together. And we sang two songs that Cross of Christ sang all the time, We Will Feast and How Deep. And I just stood there for the first time in eight months crying at the beginning of worship. Because it hurt to feel that loss again. Part of the season has been trying to reorient in change. Each of us has been touched by change. Nothing today in your life is as it was two years ago. The American church as a whole is in a strange in-between moment. Many churches are down in attendance, 10 to 25%. Most pastors are exhausted and struggling to understand who is still part of the church, who's here in person on Sunday mornings, who's watching online, who's in small group, who's not, who, who's moved out of state that we don't know about. They're just trying to figure out, who do I still need to pastor? 
Sundays have fundamentally changed. Never before have pastors and churches in the history of the world had to exist in two realms simultaneously, in person and online. And as we look forward to what's next, it can be hard to know what to expect because so much has changed. I recently interviewed both Russell Moore and Mark Sayers for Subsplash's podcast. If you're not familiar with them, Russell Moore was a significant leader in the SBC, um, and Mark Sayers is an author and one of the best thinkers on church and culture living. I interviewed both of them, and I asked them what they saw as the challenges that the church will face the next few years. Russell Moore said political violence, and Mark Sayers says increasing disruption like the supply chain that we're experiencing because of an increasingly complex world. If you remove one Lincoln log piece, it falls, right? So political violence and disruption. And so as we look forward, the church is disoriented. What do we do in light of these challenges? One of the keys to resilience and one of the best ways to reorient yourself in the face of uncertainty and challenge is to set appropriate expectations. So much of relationships and so much of life has to do actually with having right and good and appropriate expectations. Uh, Kim and I spent the first year and a half of our marriage in Mongolia. Uh, she was in the Peace Corps. I really wanted to marry her, so there we started. And before we left, uh, one of my best friends at the time, Joe, um, he's, he still oversees all of USAID for the U.S. government in Asia. So anytime there's a tsunami or an earthquake or some natural disaster, he's responsible for distributing aid. And so he has spent his career overseas doing great work like that. And he said to me, Nick, look, you're moving to Mongolia, you're moving overseas. I want to help you understand what's going to happen to you. You need to have some expectations for what you're going to live through here. First month or two is like the honeymoon period. Actually, real quick, has anyone moved to California in the last year? One person, good. If we, and if we were to say how many of you have left, we'd probably have half the room, right? Um, this might help uh, Sir in the back, the one guy who's moved here, <laughs> understand uh, what you might be experiencing. Uh, but he said in the first month or two, you know, it's like the honeymoon phase. Everything's really exciting. You get to explore all the new coffee shops, all the new date night spots, the new parks for your kids. Everything is amazing until around month three or four where the anger sets in, where you start to see everything that's wrong with the place that you've moved. Like when we moved to... Uh, Mongolia or, or Seattle, um, you know, actually largely kind of started with driving. Why do they drive like this? What's wrong with these people? Why is everyone so mean? How come no one smiles here? You start to see everything that's weird and different about where you came, and you start to kind of get a little frustrated. And that happens from month three or four to about month eight, where you start to ask questions like, why are they like this? <laughs> how did this place and how did these people become who they are? And then as you start to answer those questions, finally around year one, you actually understand where you fit in the place that you now are. So he helped me get a, at least a progression of phases for understanding uh, what I might experience in that first year and how long I had until I actually felt like I belonged somewhere. And I can just tell you, someone who moved to Mongolia, it proved true there. We moved to Seattle, it proved true there. We moved back to Orange County, it proved true there. And I can tell you actually right now in the midst of this season of transition that I'm in right now, it proved true. I'm eight months in and I'm just kind of mad. <laughs> I'm just like, why is everything so different? Why does life feel so hard? So one of the keys to resilience and one of the best ways to reorient yourself in the face of uncertainty and challenges is to set appropriate expectations. Knowing those phases 
and knowing what to expect helped me and Kim navigate changes. The Bible in general, and Acts in particular, the book that you guys are studying through right now, is helpful for Christians to know what to expect from God. As Aslan says in Lewis's Prince Caspian, things never happen the same way twice. But I think you could argue that there's always a melody because God always acts in accordance with his character. And because he always acts in accordance with his character, there is a melody that might sometimes be distant, sometimes be louder, but it's there. He might not act the same way twice, but he does act consistently with who he is. And so my hope this morning is that by seeing how God works in Acts 13, you might not only know what to expect in this next season, so that you can have resilience and hope. Here's our roadmap for our time together. Here's what you can expect. Expect the Spirit to work in new places and new people. Expect spiritual opposition. And expect God to save. Three things Christians can expect God to do. Expect the Spirit to work in new places and new people. Expect spiritual opposition. And expect God to save. So first, expect the Spirit to work in new places and new people. So the first few verses in Acts 13 kind of give you a, a picture of a few of the key players at this church in Antioch. And as you guys know from going through Acts, Acts is the story of the church written by Luke. Luke writes his gospel to tell you about Jesus, and then he writes his story of Acts to tell you about the birth of the church. And the pattern in Acts, one of the patterns, is this word and spirit ministry, this a proclamation of the gospel, the telling of people that there is a God who exists, who has made a way for them to be reconciled to him through Jesus. When that is preached, the spirit works in mighty ways to give power and evidence to the authority and truth of the message. And Paul, as God's chosen uh, tool uh, to take the gospel to the Gentiles and kings, uh, starts his ministry a couple chapters before here. Antioch here is a hub. It's interesting to see where this falls. It's always helpful to kind of, when you're reading through a passage, understand like, where does this fall in the whole story? Where does this fall in the narrative? What is, what is the writer trying to help us understand? And actually chapter 13 is, is a really interesting chapter because what's happening here is uh, Paul, not Paul, uh, Luke is making an argument for Antioch being evidence of God doing a new thing. This new church hub, this new church plant is now kind of on the same level as Jerusalem. He's arguing for that here. He's giving evidence of that. So in chapter 11, uh, Antioch, through these same prophets, uh, heard from God that there would be a famine. And so this little church plant, I mean, who knows how many people were there? I don't know, 10, 30? Who knows how many people were there? But some, some number of new believers, some number of new Jewish and Gentile believers heard this word from God, there's going to be a famine. They take an offering from this church plant, and they send it back to the home base in Jerusalem. They say, hey, we heard you guys are going to have a famine. You don't know about it yet, but God told us. So here's some money. We thought of you. That's awesome. Imagine the baby passing the milk back up to mom kind of thing, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a handing back up the chain to the people who planted them. So Antioch in chapter 11 sends aid back to Jerusalem, the church that kind of originated uh, their church back in 11. And Antioch then becomes a hub of mission in this chapter. So it goes from extending mercy now to mission. And you get this picture here of these, these people, these prominent prophets and teachers. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus. 
We, we know that from Acts 5, where it specifically says that. Simeon was black, likely a North African. Lucius was a Greek. Menean was from a wealthy family. And Saul was a Pharisee and a murderer. And so Luke's intent here in naming all those people isn't to just give you a, a, an attendance sheet. He's giving you a picture of what the church looked like. This multiracial, diverse, new thing that God is doing that is, that is different from what Christianity, Christianity was from its inception, which was a largely Jewish converted group of people. This diverse group in Antioch is now becoming a hub of mission. The Spirit leads through this diverse group of prophets and teachers. And this shows the authority of the word, but it also shows that it isn't opposed to God speaking. God speaks through his word, but he's also speaking to these men as they are in prayer and fasting. And he's telling them to set apart Paul and Barnabas. God speaks in two ways, but they're always in, a, in agreement. There's a Puritan who said something like, I'm going to really poorly paraphrase this, but something like, uh, the spirit never loosens what the word binds. The spirit never approves what the word uh, prohibits. Like the two things always work in conjunction. So if someone says like God told me to do something and it was opposite of what the Bible says, God doesn't tell them that. They always work together. And so the Spirit says to them, send out Paul and Barnabas. God does speak. God wants to speak. He speaks through these men in their time, in this place, as they're practicing prayer, fasting, teaching, preaching, everyday life, as they are keeping themselves in, like, uh, I know Matt is big on spiritual formation, as we, as we should be as Christians, considering how, does, how do our habits and behaviors form us as believers? And these men in this passage, we see briefly that they had a practice of prayer and fasting. And you could say that that is a way to keep them in tune. If you guys are musicians, you know, you often need to tune a piano or a stringed instrument. Um, I played a saxophone. You never tune that. You just look like a dork. Uh, but the, that practice of spiritual formation, this prayer and fasting, keeps them in tune with the Spirit. And as they're in tune, God speaks. This church is active before it's formally recognized. It's instrumental in clarifying the gospel in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Again, where does this fall in the scope of Acts? In Acts 11, they send money and support back to Jerusalem to support them in the coming famine, the original believers and the apostles even back then. In 13 here, they send out Paul on his first missionary journey. And in Acts 15, they're the church that sends Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to say, hey, we heard some people saying they have to get circumcised in order to be a real Christian. Is that true? And then they send this letter clarifying what the gospel is. Luke is making a point. God is doing something new. He's doing it in a new place through new people. What if we don't have this expectation? Like I said, having these expectations helps us know what to expect from God. Helps us to see what might happen in this coming season. If we don't have this expectation that God is doing something new or will do something new through new people in new places, we're content with the status quo. We're content with what is. We're content to just allow things to continue to exist regardless of what God may be doing around us. We're slow to affirm what God might be doing. We're slow to see where he might be leading and slow to act because we'll just be happy to let things be as they've always been. We elevate our preferences on form over the heart of the Spirit. We think we need to have it perfectly figured out 
If anything, Acts shows us often when the Spirit moves, it's totally messy and chaotic even sometimes. It confronts our desire to have everything controlled, measured, perfect before we affirm that it's definitely God working. For example, this is a little bit of an embarrassing example for me personally. When we, again, we moved to Mongolia. The church was 15 years old there because the first Christians came in once, the, uh, once communism collapsed and the Berlin Wall fell. Um, the Russians left Mongolia overnight and Swedish Lutheran missionaries came in and planted the first churches. So when we lived there, the Christians who had been the Christians the longest were only 15 years old. And they had these rugged, young churches. And the church that we found ourselves in was led largely by women. Coming out of my reformed evangelical Mars Hill Acts 29 kind of mindset, I was like, wait a second, guys, this, is, this doesn't fit my paradigm, right? Where are the men? Where like, and there were some good men there, but largely the women carried the weight of the church. And there was a part of me that was like, hold on, this, this can't be right. Something's broken here. Rather than looking at, hold on, wait a second, there are good men here. There's just not enough of them. And thank God for these women that are carrying this load. And they're doing it in a way that is respectful of the authority of men, as we see in Scripture, to carry the responsibility for leading and pastoring the church. It wasn't in antithesis of that. It was patiently waiting for that to become a reality. But in my kind of it needs to fit this perfect paradigm that needs to be buttoned up rather than looking at God's doing a new thing in this new place. How can I help support and grow this? It challenged that in me. I had to find a way to uh, get over my preferences and my desire for form and see what the Spirit might be doing. It didn't have to be perfectly figured out in that moment. And in regard to form, uh, you know, we're in Orange County, we're in Irvine. Um, there's ways that we grew up, many of us grew up in churches and we kind of prefer a particular way of things. Uh, but it's fun to challenge yourself and see and be exposed to things that are, that are different than what you might be uh, used to. Uh, there's an X-29 pastor named Doug Logan. He pastors in Camden, uh, New Jersey, which is like the murder capital of the U.S. And I remember him one time saying, like he said, I know I'm doing a good job in a black church when they talk back to me. And they're saying, yeah, amen, like keep preach, you know, which is, which is awesome. He's like, I know I'm doing a great job in a white church when they're taking no notes. <laughs> and, and there's a part of us, like there's a part in a church that might grow up in this largely Caucasian or Asian where it's a little more reserved and that might feel normal and comfortable. And if you get exposed to something that's a little more emotional or expressive, you go, hold on, hit the brakes on this because this feels funny. And you're slow to affirm what the Spirit might be doing and vice versa. We take our preferences and we elevate and we go, well, God can't be working over there. But what you see in Antioch and throughout Acts is God's going to do what God wants to do and he's going to do it through new places and new people constantly. What's your place in this then? And I would say embrace this truth that God is going to do new things in new places through new people. Actually, a better way to say it would be God's going to do what he's always done in new places and new people. The church has always been the most diverse group on the planet. There is no group more diverse than the Christian church around the globe. Every other major religion is bound to location and language. The majority of Hindus are in India, speak common language, worship in a common place. The, common, the, the uh, majority of Buddhists are in parts of Asia who speak common languages and are from a common place. Uh, Islam, anchored to the Middle East, uh, have to learn Arabic in order to read the Quran. 
anchored to a place and a language. Christianity is not. It's the ultimate decentralized, diverse religion. There is nothing more diverse on this planet than the Christian church. That's why I love what the village does with uh, the ministry you guys support in Albania and the church planning over there. It gives you a glimpse of what God might be doing in a different place through different people who aren't tethered to a common tongue or place. And culturally, our country tries to make much of diversity, but it's only growing more homogenous and tribal. The world in which we live in is getting more and more insular. We only talk to people who think like us, who look like us. Christianity, the Christian church in America has a tremendous opportunity in this next season to actually be a place where we can disagree on secondary issues and be united in Christ where we can disagree on masks and vaccines and Democrats and Republicans and still come here and worship because we know that those things won't last. Those things will, uh, dude, there was actually, a, this comes to my, uh, Alistair Begg shared this quote from this, the head of the BBC. Uh, in the 60s, the head of the BBC was kind of overseeing the news network as, as it was becoming more um, uh, secularized. And they were in a meeting and they were, uh, Someone in the meeting was talking about how we couldn't include more, Christ, more Christian programming on the BBC because no one wants to hear it and it's, you know, it's out of fashion or whatever else. And the head of the BBC said something like, the BBC will stand at the grave of England. Oh, no, sorry, the BBC. Christianity will stand at the grave of the BBC or something like that. A beautiful picture that all these institutions that are vying for our allegiance and attention and all of that, actually Christianity will stand at all of their graves. Democrats, Republicans, America itself, Christianity will stand and outlast every single one of them. But we're growing more homogenous. And the church has an opportunity to be an example of that diversity and unity. We need to embrace this truth in this new time. The church in America has changed. God is going to work in places and people you don't expect. So I would imagine for every single one of us in this room, the call is to either empower and support or go. It's always been that, but now there's a real clear opportunity in our day and age to empower and support, whether it's the church planting in Albania that you guys support, other overseas missions that you guys support, other church plants in Orange County or California that you get behind, or going yourself to be a part of those things, to be a part of what God is doing in new places and new people. Secondly, Expect spiritual opposition. So you can expect God to work in new places through new people, and you can also expect spiritual opposition. So they're sent by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas, through the confirmation of this church, and they go to a place, here's what's fun, is the Holy Spirit sends them out, and sometimes we can get a little mystical with that, you know? Uh, well, I'm just going to kind of follow where the Spirit leads. But you know what the Spirit does here is he actually sends them to Barnabas' hometown, they go to a place where they have connections. And in my mind, that's good planning. Like, that's, that just makes sense, right? So the Spirit sends them out, but they also go to where Barnabas was from. They go to Cyprus. And they show up. They do what is the pattern in Acts. They go to a synagogue. They preach the gospel. They try to reason with the people in the synagogue to convert them to Christ. And then they somehow get this audience with this governor. Turns out this governor has some advisor, a magician, who is in his ear. Here's just a little note. Uh, you will never find anywhere in the Bible where a magician or a sorcerer turns up in a positive way. So 
if you ever come across one, just there's your red light on the dashboard blinking like it never goes well in scripture whenever there's a magician or a sorcerer. They're never seen in a positive light. They're typically self-aggrandizing and they're typically distorting the truth. Those are the patterns whenever they show up. The NLT translates his association with the governor, the, the magician says, he attached himself to the governor. That's how the NLT translates it. It's an awesome picture. Like, what, what are those uh, little fish that attach themselves to sharks? What are those called? Anyone? Mariahs or something like that? What are they called? What was it? Remora. There we go. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Remoras. It's like, a, it's like a virus, it's a parasite this magician on this governor. You guys Lord of the Rings fans? Anyone? Good. More people are familiar with the Lord of the Rings than Remoras, so we'll go with you guys. <laughs> it's like worm tongue, right? It's like that, that advisor to uh, the king of Rohan uh, in his ear, speaking evil, twisting the truth, um, misleading the person he's supposed to be lead, uh, serving. But there's a gracious invitation here from this governor, which is amazing to Paul and Barnabas. The governor, the Bible says, the governor wanted to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. He was asking for it, seeking it, requesting Paul and Barnabas, come teach me what you're telling everyone else. I want to hear it. Come to my house for dinner. Come to my office. Have an audience with me. But that audience is interfered with by this magician because he's trying to keep the governor from believing he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Paul and Barnabas said. Paul confronts him, calls him out, corrects him, does something very difficult, uncomfortable. What if we don't have this expectation of opposition, of spiritual opposition? First is we might just assume that everything spiritual is good. It's not. Again, in Scripture, we have a... Uh, the part of how Christians view the world is that it's not just material, it's not just the, uh, the physical realm, but there is a spiritual realm uh, within which we exist. And this realm is active and interacting with the physical world. And some of those beings are good. Some of those beings are bad. Not all things that are spiritual are good. And to not understand that there might be spiritual opposition might lead you to affirm or accept things that are actually harmful and evil and that God would not approve of. There's also a place here, if you don't have this expectation, to only deal with superficial matters. Look, there's 100% a place for Christians to be involved in politics and business. However, we also need to see that behind opposition, there could be spiritual realities. Your Twitter feed and your Facebook feed, your Instagram feed, whatever it is, is never going to go, hey, Satan might be behind this. It's never going to go, there might be demonic forces at work here. It's just going to say some legislation was passed, some politician said something stupid, whatever it is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep you on a superficial level. It's never going to invite you to see something deeper, which the Bible is inviting you to see. To only ever deal on the level of tactical engagement is to be distracted from often seeing the root behind the problem. As my friend said, the thing behind the thing. In Daniel 10, you get this beautiful picture of this in action. If you guys are familiar with Daniel, Daniel is uh, an advisor to the king, and he is praying for help and for wisdom and for discernment from God. 
And as he's praying, God delays in answering. For some reason, he's not answering his prayer very quickly. But then all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And he says, hey, by the way, I started out to come meet you when you first started praying, but I was delayed because the prince of Persia, and then what he's talking about there is a demonic power behind the country that, was, that he was uh, serving. This angelic demonic power delayed me. But we fought him off, and now I'm here to answer your prayer. It's this beautiful picture of like, actually there's things going on that we can't see behind the scenes that as, if you just spend your time getting ramped up on the legislation or on the news cycle or whatever else you actually miss, there might be something deeper going on to see. But we ignore that dimension often. We often do this because, and I, I, I was convicted of this last week, like I, I often think through things very rationally, like, it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Like it's right or wrong. Like it's, I, I, I try to think it through and I was having a conversation with some people and I was like, why do I resist that? Why, what's the problem there? Why, why do I default to rationality at the expense of this spiritual domain? And if I'm honest, and I imagine I'm not alone in this room, it's because when I think about addressing things spiritually, I think about the ways I've seen that abused. I think about the embarrassing like Benny Hinn videos that I get forwarded sometimes. Like I think about all the weird ways that Christianity has abused their engagement with the spiritual realm. And I go, I just don't want to be associated with that. That's kind of weird and icky. And so I just don't touch it. But that's not right. That would be an easy, if I was screw tape, that would be an easy distraction, wouldn't it? In this chapter, we see Paul both reasoning and confronting spiritually. In these few verses we've read together, Paul goes to the synagogue, he reasons with them, and then he comes to this governor and he's teaching him, but then he also confronts the spiritual opposition, the thing behind the thing. He's not afraid to engage at that level. This might make some of us uncomfortable because I don't know how you are with confrontation or more so with spiritual confrontation, but that can be pretty uncomfortable in our day and age. It can be pretty uncomfortable to say, not only is that right or wrong, that actually might be demonic. That actually might be something that is spiritually deeply opposed to God. And I imagine even as I say that, it's probably some of you guys are like, oh, that feels like something I could never say. But Paul says it. Paul gives us an example of we actually might need to address things at that uncomfortable level, confront at that uncomfortable level. Maybe your place in it is to consider it like this. Maybe here's another example of what this could look like because that might sound scary to you. Let me give you another maybe paradigm that would be helpful. Um, we've, it's helpful to address things holistically, right? Like oftentimes, pastorally, uh, it's my job, pastor's job, to address things spiritually. But I'm not a doctor, I can't address the medical problems that someone might be dealing with. And I'm not a psychologist, and I can't address the psychological issues they may be struggling with. Um, I, I, I'm not a dietitian. I, might, I can't speak to what they could improve physically in their body to help them maybe feel a little better or be healthier, whatever it is. Part of my, my job was to address this slice, this part of this, the problem. And so it can be helpful to think, there's ways to address problems in the world around us, in the lives, in our own lives, and in the lives of people we love, emotionally, cognitively, physically, 
We do that with therapy or medication or education or legislation or just physical exercise, but there's a place for Christians to think and address spiritually. Blaise Pascal said, the, Im the immortality of the soul is a matter which is of so great consequence to us and which touches us so profoundly that we must have lost all feeling to be indifferent about it. Our world is indifferent to the immortality of the soul. They don't think about, am I an eternal being? Is my soul immortal? Will this live forever, this soul that I have? They don't think about it. We do. And because we do, we can think about how can we address problems at a soul level. That can be our specialty. Lastly, expect God to save. We get this last verse here in verse 12. When the governor saw what happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So expect God to save. The governor saw what happened, Paul's confrontation of this magician, his shutting down uh, of this magician's power. And in conjunction with the teaching that Paul also did, led to this governor's belief. Again, the teaching and the power of the Spirit Actually, the power of the Spirit working through both leads to the faith of this governor. You got to imagine, like, when Paul's in here and he's teaching this governor, as he's talking to him, what's he, like, what's he saying to him? What leads to this man's belief? Like, you can get clues from other uh, sermons that are recorded in Acts, or you can get clues from Paul's other epistles of what he might say, but you could imagine it would be like, Governor, there is a God who made everything good and beautiful and true. And this God reigns over your empire. This God made everything that exists. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-present. But, Governor, you know, you and I both have done wrong things. We have done things that are not good and not true and not beautiful. We've done things that are not loving. And you and me have offended that God. We've wronged him. And just like you, governor, that has to punish people who are not just, you have to punish people who break laws, that God has to punish those laws too. But governor, here's the good news. There's a man named Jesus. There's a man named Jesus who just a year or two ago, actually longer than that, right, Matt? 10 years? Maybe a decade ago? There was a man named Jesus. I should have reviewed the timeline there. There's a man named Jesus. God sent his son to live the perfect life for you, to die the death and pay the penalty that you owe that creator God, to raise from the dead and defeat the power of sin and death, a power that your empire cannot conquer. He did. And he rose from the dead to give you new life and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, to wipe away every tear, to make everything that sin has marred whole. And this Jesus, governor, isn't like your Roman pantheon who are self-interested and uninvolved. This Jesus governor knows your name. And imagine this magician whispering in his ear this whole time. It's not true. It's not true. Don't listen to them. And yet Paul continues. He knows your name, governor. This Jesus loves you. This Jesus is with you. This Jesus isn't tied to some locale. This Jesus has known you from the beginning and the foundation of the world. And this Jesus has chosen you to know him. And this Jesus died for you. So what do you say, governor? Will you trust him? I think a beautiful thing about this vignette that we get here in one sentence, if you just kind of zoom out like we just did, and you might see what it looked like for Paul to preach Jesus to this governor. You get this vignette 
that encapsulates the truth that God could not be stopped from saving the governor. Though the magician is in his ear, God won't be stopped by that. That's nothing. That opposition is too small, too weak, too meager to stop God. God was not going to be stopped from saving this man, this governor. And in this picture, you get Paul, a man who was set apart by God, preaching the gospel to another man who was set apart by God to bring him in to the loved and reconciled family of the Father. What more could you give yourself to in this life? Our world wants you to enroll in politics and consumerism and careerism. None of them have to do with the eternal life of people. None of them have to do with the immortality of the soul. None of them proclaim to people they are known and loved by the God who made them. So what if you don't have this expectation that God saves? I think you get locked in self-reliance without God. That's my temptation. My temptation is I can handle it. My temptation is I'm smart, I'm strong, capable. I can do it. How does that go for you? <laughs> I can tell you how that goes for you. I can tell you how that goes for you when circumstances arise that you didn't plan for, like COVID. That I can tell you how that goes for you when circumstances arise that you are powerless against, like government restrictions. You got nothing in the face of those things. Self-reliance without God will always hit a wall. But if you have this expectation that God saves, not only that, and I want you to hear this, I'm not just talking about other people, I'm talking about you. Do you believe that God will save you? Do you believe that God is with you and for you in the challenges that you're facing in this season? Do you believe that he actually is ahead of you in your next season and he's holding it and you as you walk through them? That whatever it is you face, the loss of a job, the loss of a child, cancer, whatever awful, horrible thing that might be in the next season because life is hard, our world is broken, that God can save you in there, that God can be with you in there, that God will love you in it. If you don't have that expectation that God will save, you're just left with that self-reliance. If you don't have that ex expectation, you're also in survival mode. And my invitation for you, Village Church, this morning is to shift from survival mode to proactive mode. To shift from just trying to make it to what's next. I think one of the worst things about the last two years one of the most challenging, detrimental things for every single one of us is that survival mode. We didn't know what to expect next. Everything seemed to change day to day. We didn't know when we'd be done with this. We still don't really. Like, we're kept in this mode of uncertainty. What if we just said, so what? What's next? What if you said, where is God leading? What is God doing? How do we get behind it? And shift from survival mode to proactive mission-minded mode. And so I had this closing point where I was going to give you your place in it, but I changed my mind. I'm not going to tell you your place in it. I'm going to ask you your place in it because I believe the Spirit leads, works, speaks, moves. So where is your place in what God is doing in the village church, in Irvine, in Orange County? Where is your place in it? Where do you get to discern 
Where do you need to discern spiritual realities underneath opposition? Where do you need to confront? Where can you turn from skepticism and doubt or embarrassment to trusting that God loves you and is with you and will work where you've written him off? One of the keys to resilience, like I said at the beginning, and one of the best ways to reorient yourself in the face of uncertainty and challenge is to set appropriate expectations. And in this chapter, we see that God is going to do new things in new places through new people. We see that he is going to be with you and work through spiritual opposition and that he is going to save. Those are appropriate expectations for this next season. And the Bible in general and Acts in particular is helpful for helping you and I know what to expect. And so my hope this morning is that by seeing how God works in this chapter, you might not only know what to expect, but that you'll also have resilience and hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, the way these moments on Sunday mornings pull us out of distraction and busyness of our everyday lives and reorient us to your story. Reorient us to who you are. Reorient us to who we are within your story and in your love and under your reign. God, we ask for the gift of your spirit to empower me and us in this church that you would help us, Lord, to be mission-minded, that you would help us to have expectations, that you are at work, that you would help us to, ex to expect of you that you would save us and those in our lives. God, would you save us from small views of you and small expectations? Jesus, we thank you for loving us in our fear and anxiety and doubt and skepticism. God, would you meet us with your love and grow us in our hope and courage. In Jesus' name, amen.